after everything I saw, what could I do? You know, what could I now do? I knew I was arriving to the scale in which the gold standard was of that moment, which is a whole subway car. From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 17 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, graffiti artist Futura talks about the art scene in New York in the 1970s and about technique. Uh, The simplest thing I could say is all you have to do is turn the can upside down. Seems pretty simple. Support for this episode of Design Matters comes from Lexus, and we are thrilled to have them as our podcast partner. In the late 1960s and early 1970s, Leonard Hilton McGurr was a young artist writing graffiti on subway cars in New York City. Then he joined the Navy and was overseas for four years. When he came back, the graffiti scene was beginning to merge with the East Village scene and generating art stars like Keith Haring and Jean-Michel Basquiat. McGurr started working on canvas, became integral to the movement, and over the years, his lush and lyrical paintings have turned him into the art star we know as Futura. He's also designed album covers and performed on stage with The Clash. And if that wasn't cool enough, he's also designed sneakers and automobiles. Futura, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you. Glad to be with you, Debbie. Thanks for having me. So I know you go by Lenny, so I'm going to try to call you that. I'm a little bit awestruck here, so I'm going to try to calm my nerves. But Lenny, you grew up on 103rd Street and Broadway in Manhattan. What is your first memory of being creative? Well, I'd have to tell you, I think it was the World's Fair in 1964 and 1965. And it's funny because I heard like Seinfeld mention that or someone else of my you know, same demographic, you know, numerics. I think the World's Fair was huge for me in terms of the time span that it existed out there in Flushing, Queens, and uh, the fact that as a result, the New York City Board of Education at the time was looking at it as this unbelievable resource in, you know, like right in town. And so I remember being bussed out there a lot as far as trips. But it was a very inspirational and eye-opening in seeing the globe because I had been looking at TV and the only thing I knew about the world other than what I read in books was what I saw on television. And it was basically sports and like Olympic games. So I was always excited about the internationalness, right, of the world. Knowing this now has suddenly put your body of work utilizing the atom iconography it makes sense. in a whole new perspective. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. <laughs> Completely new perspective. Yeah, because you're also at the dawn, well, not even the dawn, we're, we're in the atomic age. I mean, I'm going to school and, you know, the whole drill of like, what good is it going to do for a little kid to get under a desk? Right. We grew up with drills like that. Now, okay, that's just... The 60s for you. For me, the atomic symbol and atomic energy 
was obviously a thing. I mean, we were, we were at war or basically holding a war at bay over the threat of such an attack. So I was very aware as a kid about a lot of those things. I was curious about science and, you know, I'm a big Kubrick fan, as you probably have heard, and, you know, Dr. Strangelove. Yes. So I'm a child of all of that. But the World's Fair specifically and the nuclear age was the impetus for some of my symbolism, sure. And for me, that symbol, personally, it's just the energy within me. And I, I sort of motifed it, right? I, I kind of found something to symbolize that for me. You were first introduced to graffiti riding the subway back and forth to school. What kind of work do you remember seeing at the time? And, and what kind of impression did it make on you? Well, it was, all, it was like amateur hour, you know, <laughs> all of that initial timeline, right? Because it's just one level up from a magic marker to a can of spray paint. And it was very primitive. It wasn't as if it had evolved. Now, there were, you know, the phase twos and the riff 170s and, the, you know, the Flint 707s, you know, like some writers of the early 70s who were already expanding beyond what we thought a spray can could do, i.e. replace a marker or a pencil or pen in your hand and just write something, some sort of stylized version of your name, but now elaborating on that. And the first book of our culture is called The Faith of Graffiti, with a foreword by Norman Mailer, and has a European title called Watching My Name Go By. Mm. There's a great graffiti writer, rest in peace, named Stay High 149. He was kind of an inspiration for me in his sense of what his tag, his signature looked like on the wall, inside a subway car, on the outside of a subway. Wherever he put his name, it just looked amazing. And he had a backup name called Voice of the Ghetto. And Voice of the Ghetto and Watching My Name Go By. Those two phrases or combinations of words are everything for me as far as how do you explain what it all is? On one hand, yeah, it was the voice of the ghetto. And Wayne, a.k.a. Stay High, had really immortalized a kind of a sensibility because that's what it was initially. And watching my name go by is this idea of later looking at trains riding through our system from rooftops in the Bronx, street corners in Brooklyn, anywhere where there was an elevated train. Now, sure, you could see trains roll through the system underground, but they look better upstairs. And I, I still know what that feels like, although, you know, I'm, I'm far beyond that kind of sensation. I do miss that being that young artist doing things like that, like just kind of for the fun of it, because I think initially it was just a thrill of writing your name. And when I took the train, those names spoke to me. I I wanted to be part of that bigger movement. You picked up your first spray paint can in 1970, and you started spraying the subway system as well as the entrance to the Statue of Liberty. Did you have any sense at that point of what you wanted to create? And did you get in trouble for painting the entrance to the Statue of Liberty? See, what happened was Taki 183, okay, he's the recognized kind of godfather, you know, here in New York. T-A-K-I-183, a Greek kid. Just to say Taki was immortal in the sense that he got published in the Times, I think, in 69. 
this is way before Faith of Graffiti, which I said was like 74. So Taki was already being written about in, in New York locally. And then in a public service announcement, I believe it was like anti-smoking commercial of a of family walking up the torch of the statue. Because back in the day, the, you could literally walk up her hand into the torch and, and look out on the torch. I think that's all, yeah, that's all been closed, that. right? But yep. back then, you could walk up the spiral staircase and there was a Taki tag on that spiral staircase. Because I think what the, the smoking PSA was, you know, the father's trying to walk up the stairs and he's stopping and coughing. It was one of those things, like, very subtle, but, you know, wow, dude shouldn't be smoking. That talkie tag to me was like, oh, wow, okay, well, I'll never have the balls to do that. I'm not going to go up in there and get caught, but I'll write on the fence or some, you know, it's a kind of homage, actually, to him. And yeah. But, yeah, I, I was trying to join. Like I said, I wanted to be a graffiti writer. And yeah. Futura 2000, the, the name, the tag I had at that time was kind of elaborate, it had arrows and it was, you know, I look at it now, I'm like, wow, very aspirational. But my tag, I felt, was also very important, as was my name. You know, Taki was using his own name. He lived on 183rd Street. You know, a lot of the kids were not being very, you know, clever. It's like a Joe 136, or, you know, so-and-so. That meant Joe lived on 136th Street, right? Pretty much, <laughs> yeah. yes, exactly. As did Joe 182 and Mike 171 and, you know, so... There was something like you're the guy up on the North Pole. You know, you just sort of put your flag you own down. that territory. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's your spot. But then the kickback or the reward with the graffiti community is, well, now go out and do that as many times as you want, increase over space and time and visibility and stuff. So, I mean, that's the whole premise behind Getting Up, right? Getting Up is another book written by a man named Craig Castleman. And his idea was basically the just putting your name up there as a sense of like, you know, there I am, you know, this is my identity, you know, I, I exist. And maybe I belong here. Uh, yeah. I mean, well, the taking over of public spaces, I mean, I think in the beginning there was a kind of code, you know, we had rules and we frowned upon private property in a sense of like, let's not be destroying people's stuff, but the city's open game. But, you know, then that just got out of control, kids tagging on everything. But me personally, I would never do that. And and, I, and I've always been offended, actually, when I go kind of, I don't know, like to Europe, you know, at a time in the world when one could go to Europe and then see Italy just tagged, you know, horribly, as is France. And Europe has like a graffiti problem, for sure. You know, as does, I guess, New York as well. And But is it really a problem? Who is it a problem to? Well, I feel like it's very difficult to control the lowest level of what's happening on the street. Whoever's a 14 to 20 year old in any of these areas that are have a graffiti community, that's not really based on any sort of, at least for now, thought of advancement and kind of rise up out of that into something else where one might be more creative and could financially benefit from their creativity in some way. Yeah. But at the moment, I'm talking about the core kids that are like the real graph heads that just bomb. You know, they're, they're tagging up, they're doing throw-ups, they're going over each other. You know, it's pretty easy for me, even 50 years later, to read the writing on the wall. It's, it's just all there. You know, you see it. 
And I think that's a bit of an eyesore in society that is always going to be the demerit to the greatness of, you know, what this culture has become. Because on face value, there is nothing really interesting about that, you know, but it's hypocritical or almost paradoxical. But I can't not understand their, I don't know what, you know, their angst, their feeling and where they are in the position. I get it. That's why I don't really want to ever tell young people what to do. I think they got to figure that out. But I do think there's still a community that's not interested in really making art. Lenny, you said that as a light-skinned teenager raised by interracial parents, you grew up confused about where you fit in. You didn't find out that you'd been adopted until you were 15 years old and stated that while this revelation helped you make sense of some of your sort of innate confusion, it also robbed you of your identity. And that's really when you turned to writing graffiti. How did you find or discover your identity through writing graffiti? Bingo, Debbie. Yeah, that's it. Because, <laughs> you know, I get that information, right? Uh, hey, honey, you know, we're not blah, blah, blah. And I was already confused because I was growing up as a mixed kid, as so I assumed. But I never was like a woe is me. There were plenty of other kids who were certainly less <laughs> fortunate. And I had a lot of love. So I appreciated that a lot. You know, fortunately, somebody got me in the right hands and, and then these guys took care of me. And then as a result of my, oh, wow, who am I? What am I? I'm not them. I'm not who I thought I was. Graffiti just lent itself to, okay, I'll create an identity. I'll join this. And I know that I'm future. I know I am future now. This, this much I'm sure. So it's kind of, that was my impetus, I feel, to become the graffiti writer. Yeah. If I could take something that I've always felt was, you know, to most people, quite important, you know, their, their whole upbringing and family and all that. Yeah. Well, hey, when my mom passed in 75, and I just picked it up right from there and dealt with my grieving pops who was super distraught. And for another 10 years, he was on earth. And when he passed, well, it was a kind of a, okay, that's, that's gone. You know what I mean? I just sort of had a way of removing myself really emotionally from it because, well, duh, I'm on my own. I'm on my own, right? So I need to get on with my own life. And I did have dreams, not about being a famous artist, but about being a father, actually. And trying to succeed in that part where I felt, you know, some things weren't necessarily in that yeah. classic, not like Rockwell, but, you know, the family, right? Like whatever that is. And, yeah. and as a result, I think of my own desire to ultimately get that done in my life, I did. And whatever my art career was, as I balanced that along the way, I'm, I'm of the good fortune, you know, I think not just of my own labor, effort, talent, whatever, you know. You know, maybe it was my upbringing. Uh, my mom was very strong with me. But she did make you a jacket you could put your spray paint cans in, I, she absolutely, I understand. She absolutely did. Not only for being able yeah. to take them into the subway, but also for taking them into stores to potentially hey. acquire spray paint cans in a, in a manner that wasn't necessarily uh, legal. You're right. <laughs> my mother was very supportive, actually, in a lot of ways, and creative, too. Like, way more than me. I think you had asked about my creativity, and I mentioned uh, the World's Fair. 
But my mom was really great with her hands and could just whip up stuff, not just great food, but any number of kind of almost MacGyvery things, you know, in a sense of putting stuff together. I really loved my mom growing up. And the beauty for me and my mom was that she was actually 40 years older, right, than me. Her wisdom, you know, at her age, I feel was awesome because it was very much antiquated in an old-fashioned way, but with these value systems that I still think are, you know, they're virtu- you know, it's like some really good stuff there. So I'm grateful for that upbringing. And strangely enough, when I went in the military for four years, those guys were nothing compared to the sort of regimentation that my mom delivered to me throughout my life. So so she really was the one that taught you discipline. Oh, without question. And responsibility and all of these kind of, you know, qualities that I feel, you know, most individuals uh, should have just on face value. You know, the same things I tried to impart to my kids, like being decent, obviously. But beyond that, you know, being helpful in, in ways that, in which you can and stuff. So I've carried all of that, you know, and uh, and I also learned a lot in the military, too. I mean, that was... That was my four years of a university, you know, and and when I came back from that experience, uh, none of my friends, well, some had been educated locally in colleges and whatever. Some went out of state, but some had never even left the block. So it was remarkable how I felt I had uh, matured uh, as a man, as a person, just in that experience, you know, and having the ability to tell someone if they were interested, oh, I was in Mombasa, Kenya or something. And they're like, what? You know, like, so that was amazing as a 22 year old, I guess, coming back with all that new information, which back to the World's Fair was why I, I chose to, you know, the, the expression at that time was join the Navy, see the world. And I was like, hmm, that works, you know, and I, and I did wind up traveling, I could say extensively, and saw a lot of different, and went to a lot of different countries. Yeah, I saw you went to Kenya, Pakistan, yeah. Australia, yeah. Asia. Yeah. You came back and then moved to Savannah, Georgia. I did. Um, you were a shrimper, a truck driver. You even gigged at a radio station. Wow. Well, first, what sent you to Georgia, and yeah. then what summoned you back to New York? Well, I, I came out of the military, and... I wasn't ready for a civilian life, if, if you will, right? It was just too abrupt. Like you come out of that system and you're back in the world. And I just felt out of place in New York. My friend had moved to South Carolina and I was like, you know what? I'll drive down. I had a car. I was like, I'll drive down there and, and come hang out with you. And that's how it started. I went down to see him and then he's like, oh, I'm moving to Savannah I got a job at a radio station. And so I just followed my friend, actually. But then my friends in New York, you know, they're calling me like, hey, you should come back. And I heard a lot of stuff about what was happening on the street, even though I had no idea how I was going to re-enter. And it would be through my friend Mark and the soul artist. And and that's kind of how we, we got the ball rolling in 79. Your work evolved quite a bit after you came back to New York. You began to shift to abstraction. You weren't using words or specificity. You included shadows and shading, three-dimensional perspectives. How did your work evolve so thoroughly, given you had taken such a long break from graffiti writing? Graffiti 1980 
was a famous wall that Lee had painted at the time. However, in 1980, the SE Studios project went down during the summer months, uh, May, June, June, July of 1980. So that year, uh, myself and Zephyr, one of my contemporaries and another artist of that era, were asked to kind of organize and curate a bunch of artists who were modern-day, real-time, bombing subway artists come in to a controlled environment, paint on canvas, in which this collective would be saved. And Zephyr and I ran that studio. And over a two-month period, we saw maybe 35 different artists come through and paint for us. It was that observational period, right, of watching all these young boys and uh, Lady Pink may have been one of the only females who participated, but watch all these kids paint, do their thing. And painting on canvas had already been realized a couple of times and had been tried in the early 70s with the United Graffiti Artists, the UGA, and later with a group called Noga, Nation of Graffiti Artists. So we were attempting to do the third version of what had been done now. And it was powerful because we got some great paintings uh, through that whole uh, studio session. And I learned so much. And so after watching everyone do letters and characters and drop shadows and all these, like everything, every trick in the book, I was like, hmm, all right, well, I think I want to abandon the letter. So my arrival at abstraction was after everything I saw, what could I do? You know, what could I now do? And what I thought of doing was what I didn't see being done. Right after the SE studio, I go out and paint my abstract, what I've called my opus, because it's like I knew I was arriving to the scale in which the gold standard was of that moment, which is a whole subway car. In the same way Fab Five Freddy painted Andy's soup cans, on the side of his train to kind of talk to the, not sophistos, but anyone who thought this was just nonsense and garbage. Well, hey, wait, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. That's Warhol's soup cans. You know, something that was in the popular culture that was being yanked out. By Freddie doing that, he was speaking to the art world. By me doing the break train, I was speaking to a new audience. And because truth be told, like the graffiti writers of that moment were like, yo, what, yo, what's that? You know, it's like they weren't necessarily on the same wavelength, which, of course, is fine by me because this was also my moment of discovering where maybe I could be and what type of artist Futura could be, even if it wasn't accepted at that time. Well, th that mural is now considered a defining moment in street art history. It's been described by the New York Times as an ecstatic explosion of cadmium and white, marking a stylistic rupture in the field and is still referred to mythically. Wow, that's very wonderful. Yeah, I, mean, you know, <laughs> I love that quote. We have to make mention of Martha Cooper, who took the epic photograph of that train running yeah. in nature, you know, on an elevated track with a wonderful shot of like, a tenement building blurred a little bit, you know, yep. DOF in the background. I mean, to me, that's wonderful, right? It's like, oh, did you see a panther? Did you see a cheetah? 
you know, things that are rare, rare sightings, right? Because it's a big jungle and, you know, there's a lot of territory. And so, you know, there's only one or two of them. They can't be everywhere, right? So the fact that you catch it, and that's what yeah. really uh, makes for mythology and folklore. You know, let's be clear. Do you know, did the New York Transit Authority clean that train? Like, do you know what happened to Brake? Yeah, Brake got cleaned a little bit because there was also what was called the buffing, uh, B-U-F-F, shout out to Buff Monster. Buffing is what we call cleaning of trains. Uh, you know, it's sort of like a car wash. But normally what happens is, once again, you know, what I was talking about before about the streets talking and people are very active in the street. If other riders come into a yard and they see my train, they don't care. I mean, it, it would have to be, you know, fresh paint. You walk into a yard and you smell fresh paint. Oh, wow, that's amazing. You would dare never go near it. But you might see something that's like half buffed and you're like, oh, I don't like this guy anyway. You see what I mean? So there's no law to what's going to happen to the car. And it did get gone over. I believe it got buffed and then it got gone over. Oh. The real fever was 78, 79, where, you know, I I have a, a quote in a record I sang with The Clash. I have a song called Overpowered by Funk. Uh, it's yes, it's on do. the Clash album. It's, <laughs> I don't mention the other. I was just about to ask you about that. I don't that. mention my other recording performance, but I did sing on a record called Overpowered by Funk on Combat Rock that I'm very proud of. And one of the things I said in the lyrics is uh, the TA blew 40 mil, they say. The TA meaning the Transit Authority. Uh, the TA blew 40 mil, they say. We threw it on by night. They scrubbed it off by day. So back to the buffing story and the expense that the city was spending, right, to clean graffiti at that time. It's pretty, pretty amazing. So, yeah, I mean, the buff is the inevitable, I think, finale to the brake train. As, as, as I said, you know, more artists just going over it. And once again, I wasn't there. I don't know if it's ill will. It's the way it is out there. You mentioned The Clash. At this point in your in your career, in your life, your circle of friends was expanding and another new chapter of your life was getting ready to be written with Joe Strummer and Mick Jones and the punk rock band The Clash. Yes. You mentioned singing backup vocals on one of the tracks, yes. Overpowered by Funk. That was from their legendary, groundbreaking 1982 album, Combat Rock, which you also designed. You designed the cover and wrote out the liner notes. So yes. talk a little bit about that, because you're also a designer. Yeah, well, that was the beginning of that career, but I was mostly hired on to paint for them on stage. And so yeah. you had the break train in 80. You had me meeting the Clash in 81. Uh, go on tour with them, uh, do some live performances back on stage while they performed. 82 is the making of Combat Rock. And uh, at this point, I was doing graphics for them. I'd done some posters. You know, I used to do like backstage passes, little uh, zines we would design for just some events and stuff. Very, very primitive, all all done by hand, all cut and paste, right? It's It's only 1982. Art wasn't my thing as much as design was my thing, actually. And it's, it's strange, but I always had more of a design interest. And even when I tried to go to college, it was as a graphic arts major, which was a pretty broad topic. But I felt that it involved, you know, basically some level of like mocking stuff up. And, you know, I was really into making like fake magazine ads for companies 
that didn't exist. I just make up the name of a place. Like very George Lucas in the sense of how I used to think as just inventing things like uh, show an image of a planet, give it a name, all imaginary stuff. And so that's the core also of my, my you know, sort of like the yin yang inside of my creative flow is that one side of me is very uh, design orientated to the point where Coca-Cola, IBM, you know, certain things just marked my design aesthetic as a child. And then, yes, uh, you know, the abstract painting uh, part of me where it's completely free and I don't have to worry about, you know, uh, the size of stuff and stuff fits into a space. Now it's time for an ad I created with our sponsor, Lexus. Early on in my podcasting career, after recording my second episode of Design Matters back in 2005, I asked my guest for some feedback on how I'd done. I'll never forget her response. She told me that I might be a better interviewer if I listened to my guest's answers before formulating my next questions. It was one of the most beneficial pieces of advice I've ever gotten, and I think it's made me a better host and human. Fast forward to today, 16 years and over 450 interviews later, I'm still trying to be more emotionally intelligent, as well as cognizant of recognizing the needs of my podcast guests and allowing space for their feedback, thoughts, and emotions. EQ isn't just a soft skill anymore. Successful modern leaders of today, many of whom I've interviewed on Design Matters, draw inspiration from understanding the human elements of management and how to communicate with empathy. Lexus believes this too. The real strength of the Lexus LS is its EQ beyond IQ. When you design around pure technology, the result is a leading edge automobile. When you also design around humanity, the result is the new Lexus LS. Visit Lexus.com slash LS. That's Lexus.com slash LS to learn more. You hinted at another dabbling in rap that you did. You created an early rap record oh boy. featuring a mix of over a dub piece by The Clash yes. titled The Escapades of Futura 2000. And the track expressed some of your artistic manifesto at the time, I think you stated, I guess I must admire the need to set things on fire. Yes. Um, did you ever consider doing more work in the music industry at that time? No, I did not. Uh, because actually what occurred in 81 should have just stayed there. Uh, but as a result of what I did with The Clash and actually Joe Strummer, rest in peace. It's sad that a lot of my rest in peace. my good friends over time are no longer here. But Joe was amazing individual, as was Mick, as was the group, as was Don Letts, as was everyone associated with that experience. Right. They were all proper gentlemen. OK. In the, in the pure form of like having Brit friends and having that experience really was incredible for me. But yeah, the rap record was just something I was inspired by. Obviously, uh, what was happening in New York, Wild Style was being filmed, Style Wars was being filmed. This is 81. And when I went on tour with the boys, I asked Joe, hey, would you guys mind laying down a track? I'd love to just do this, you know, it's a homage to the whole story back home. And, and that'd be wonderful. I just want a cassette tape, Joe. 
And that's all I wanted because cassette tapes went in boom boxes. I could take that home. I could play it to Fat Five Freddy or one of my other homies, Dondi, anybody that would listen. Yo, I shouted out a lot of people want to check out my record. The following year, the French organized the New York City rap tour. And that's when my record got released as a proper record, if you will, along with four other records as a five record package. So sadly, uh, my record did get released. And uh, fortunately, no, there was no future in that because I knew that. <laughs> I thought it was terrific. Well, I love it. You can find it on YouTube. I mean, now. please, let's not. But uh <laughs> Just to say that, yeah, it was fun. I mean, and of course, you know, I painfully listened to it, I guess. And I mean, it's sincere. Yeah. There's nothing. And it's a good beat. Yeah, well, the beat is amazing, of course. So you got the Clash making a pad, you know, like a music pad for me. It's incredible. But what happened was we go on tour. We're in Paris. The first gig. It's all set. You know, rehearsal. Future is painting in the background. Okay. And Joe comes to me and Joe says, Oi, Future. I'll never forget. Oi, Fuge, because Fuge was the nickname they used to call me for Futura, Fuge. Oi, Fuge. So we're going to break after such and such a track. They were performing the Sandinista double album at the time. The combat rock was not created yet. Should I stay or should I go? Rock the Casbah. None of that had happened yet, right? Uh, I forget which song it was, but he said, okay, and then we'll bring you out and we'll do your record. And I was like, huh, no, no, we're, no, we won't. <laughs> Joe, what are you talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We love. It. Oh, yes, he's like, will. he's like, he's like, we love it, mate. We're gonna. And I was like, wait, what? You know, it's like a wait, what moment? And then basically, <laughs> I was out there, and it was the worst performance. I mean, really, I wasn't prepared, ready, and it was, it was, it was a catastrophe. So, the good ending of that story is, uh, the finale of the tour. I was going to meet them in London for a big performance at the Lyceum there, and. The one thing I was encouraged about was I would be singing in English to an English-speaking audience. So I must admit, I, I ended on a high note because I did actually get an applause, okay? And then I, I, remember, <laughs> I remember thinking like, wow, that's it, Lenny. You know, your, your art stage career, you know, as, you, as you're walking back to your painting and your back's now to them, like that's the last <laughs> time you'll ever face an audience, you know? And, and it was, actually. Well, it was from that side of the stage. You're now facing audiences that are watching you make art or when you're showing your art. Shortly thereafter, you began exhibiting with Tony Shafrazi and Patty Astor's Fun Gallery. You were showing alongside your friends, your graffiti friends. Yes. Jean-Michel Basquiat, Keith Haring, Kenny Scharf. Yes. You were included in an era-defining exhibition of young artists at PS1 titled New York, New Wave. Yes. And you stated that these were the wonder years in New York. And at that time, you weren't surprised by the fame Jean-Michel Basquiat experienced. One thing that I read in my research that I was really struck by, I'm also a very big fan of Jean-Michel Basquiat's work as well and have been since the 80s. I was surprised to read your statement that no one understood he was interpreting Cy Twombly. And that was the first time I'd ever read that. And I just thought that was so interesting. Well, I think it was more than Cy Twombly. It was Pank. You know, there were other artists who were scratching and kind of doing something. And the thing about Jean, I always respected about him even more than Keith. I mean, because Keith and Jean were great friends and I, I spent time at both of their studios and I used to watch them work. And, you know, it's still for me, one of the fascinations is to be around an artist when they're actually working. Some people don't want you there. Uh, at that time, it was pretty carefree. And John was always 
Uh, I don't think it was a performance for him, but he certainly didn't mind. And I know for Keith, it was a bit of performance and he certainly didn't mind. So, but yeah, uh, John would tell me about stuff like, he's like, yeah, you know, when I was being compared to people, and this is early days still, uh, New York, New Wave, that's also 81. So, but John was already coming with the, yeah, the comparisons to Kandinsky, you know, don't worry about that. You should read up on constructivism and stuff. So he was always a kind of go-to art Google for me <laughs> because, yeah, I didn't know a lot about that, you know, at the time. And so, but I think Jean was looking at a lot of other artists and it, it, it's also beyond those guys. It's African. I think it goes back to African art and something he also said about trying to get that back, you know, like uh, what had been taken you know, now could be reappropriated, you know, by a black man. So at the time, I mean, who was a young black artist of our generation? We didn't really have any, right? Not on any level that Jean had arrived at. So I think he was brilliant in how he appeared to be naive and like, oh, I'm a little off. But I think it was a lot of calculation also, something I don't possess. But I admire, you know, because I see like, wow, you know, it's not goodwill hunting, but it's a little something goodwill hunting about him, you know, that, you know, like he's just very smart and maybe some of the everything is just a front for other reasons. You know what I mean? I think we're all like that, obviously, but he was really good at it, you know, like I think. So many of your contemporaries from that time are no longer living. Jean-Michel, Keith Haring, Joe Strummer. To what do you attribute your staying power and your longevity? Uh, Well, not knowing my biologicals, I'll say it's uh, my DNA. I'm going to be 66 this year. It sounds ridiculous. You know, I don't feel like I'm sick. Like, what is that supposed to be? You know, the way I would think of it, it's like, you know, I don't know. I should just feel, look, act older. I don't. You know, if anything, I'm embracing this time I'm in. Yeah, there's a lot of sadness out there with what's going on. The political climate has changed, and that's helpful. So just to say that, I don't know. You know, um, I don't know how I've survived, and I just know it's a blessing. I mean, at this moment in my life, you know, I can look at it like, wow, it could really kind of just be beginning for me in a way, you know, like this other level now that I can arrive at. Which is great and so deserved. That's what I was saying, back to like just, basic humanity and, and, and hope that I treat my success with the humility I know it deserves because I'm very, very lucky. I mean, I'm one of thousands of individuals that came out of this place and, and I'm certainly one of the more uh, celebrated ones, right? So, Well, it was hard, though. By the mid-'80s, you stated that the House of Cards that was the New York art scene crumbled, and by 1985, you could put a tombstone on the New York scene. This also coincided with the uh, New York Transit Authority's big-time effort to clean subway trains as soon as graffiti appeared, even if it meant service delays, which in the past it wasn't doing. Right, right. And you essentially, at that point, removed yourself from the art world. And that's when you took a series of jobs, which included bike messenger, gas station attendant. You moonlighted for a gypsy cab service. And you sorted mail at the post office across the street from PS1. Yeah. Where you had exhibited some of your work. Yeah. Yeah, that was heartbreaking. What was that time like for you to go from these sort of huge exaltations of your talent and your ability 
and your pioneering use of a, a whole new genre to then suddenly having such a hard time making a living. Yeah, well, it wasn't easy, but you know, the little gem was I had, even by 88, 89, I had a, a four, five-year-old son. And, you know, yes. that was... Timothy. Yes, Timothy, of course. And so that was beginning to fulfill something that it, obviously I, you know, I, I had expressed that I needed in my life. And once that was accomplished, well, now I just have to get on with living, right? And how do I support them and, you know, feed people and all that. So I was working multiple jobs, just my thing, you know, like I don't have a problem hustling and working, you know, and trying to get more than maybe I even need just so we can enjoy ourselves occasionally. So I was always driven like that. And luckily I met a dealer, Philippe Rier, and then I found Agnes B as a kind of a patron of my work. And and she was very helpful, obviously, in ending my job at the post office and giving me a little bit of confidence moving into the next decade as to how what was going to happen with my work. Kind of trying to get me back into painting, which I had abandoned for a few years at that time. And by 90, my daughter is born. You know, then I really had to buckle down, if you will. However, I was never more happy. And that even in the hard times that followed, I was always optimistic and I was encouraged, you know, because now I had, uh, I had my kid. You know, it was, just, it was just a great feeling. And I was only, you know, by 90, I'm only 35. You know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not out of the game. I've just been sort of sidelined. If anything, uh, there's the constant uh, understanding of what my responsibility would be in order to do something creative, however, to take care of those guys. Fab Five Freddy, a.k.a. Fred Braithwaite, um, your friend, said this about you about that time. I've always been impressed with how brave, elegant, and honorable he was when he became a bike messenger. True to form, he was the flyest messenger and adopted a road warrior bike messenger aesthetic. <laughs> I used to see everyone on the street during that like couple year period I was out there. And uh, yeah, I was really into it. You know, I used to ride a bike. It's called a fixed bike. It's got no brakes. It's just dangerous for sure. But, you know, I went from the subway cars of New York City to an aircraft carrier you know, uh, launching air, airplanes at night, you know, in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And then I wound up on a bike with no brakes, probably going like 30 miles an hour down Fifth Avenue. So <laughs> I don't know. It was just in me. And even at that age, you know, yeah, I'm close to 35 now. I, I certainly wasn't afraid. Fact is, I did get injured. I got squeezed by a bus and a cab and uh, I broke uh, my foot and and that got me out of it, actually. But as timing would have it in my life, you know, something rolled right through. But it's so interesting how each phase sort of led almost organically into the next. Your cycling skill qualified you to participate in the inaugural Cycle Messenger World Championships held in Berlin in 1993. And this is where you met James Lavelle, who owned the British record label Mo Wax. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, God, if I don't go there, I don't meet James. Right. He was a big fan of your work. He commissioned yes. you to create artwork for many of the Moax's releases, as well as on his own debut, Uncle Album, Science Fiction. 
What was it like going from painting on wide open spaces and trains to a more confined space of an album cover? This was now, for me, I saw the potential of a new audience, though. A lot of people who have come to know me now, that's really uh, the Mowax moment. And after that, figures that we would have made and the book that we would have done, that's all a result of my relationship with Mowax. And, you know, they were enormous in the sense of like almost taking me from what people had known in the 80s, but yet reintroducing me now through my artwork uh, to a new audience in the 90s. Lenny, let's talk about Point Man. Where and when did he originate? So the Point Man goes right directly to where we were with Moax because uh, 94-5, I, I had sketched out some characters that appeared either on canvases or in some drawings. And James had the idea of making a figure. And then the figure kind of lent itself to the titling of it. And subsequently, everyone refers to that pointed head character as the point man. For me, it was a not a self-portrait at all, but that's the name I was giving myself, and it comes from the military, in terms of someone who's on point. Not like in the street, yo, he's on point, like he's dope or he's good, but on point meaning like I'm ahead of the group. I'm out in front of everyone else. I'm sort of reconnaissance, I'm looking around, I'm, you know, I could draw maps for you, I could see stuff. Then I come back and I tell you what I see as we're going in that direction. So as the older one, whether it's the class trip, me and the Navy, whatever I have been doing in my life, I was always kind of out in an advance party of everyone else. And to self-describe, you know, I, I, yo, I'll go for, you know, I'll volunteer to go do that. So the point man was a metaphor for me being out here in advance of, of the group. And then it just, you know, became wordplay and, oh, his head is pointed. And I was like, okay, yeah, whatever. So if you want the truth, that's the truth. And, and you know, that's basically the genesis of it. And, and all of the characters, all the point men I draw, you know, it's all part of that world and those guys. And There's quite a market, underground market for it in the auctions and online. I've seen that. It's crazy. It's really interesting yeah. to see. Yeah, they're really popular. Lenny, you said it wasn't until the early 90s that you started to consider yourself an artist. What changed, either externally or internally, to allow you to feel that way? Well, it's a lot to do not just with how you're making your art or what it is you're doing at any one moment, but it was also the I think the arrival of computing in the 90s and technology as it was really going to become something I felt, yeah, I could do something here. You know, I, I could be a graphic artist. I could create a portfolio, perhaps, and I could go shop that portfolio and some agency might want to work with me. You know, I, so artists in the sense of I was confident in my creativity to the point that I could even consider myself to be an artist. Whereas I think in the 80s, it was a lot of just going through the paces, being with the crew, following other people's leads, but lacking a bit of the self-confidence. So I would say that it's more self-confidence, really, and what I was able to do now. Plus, I'm getting older. You know, it's, it's, it's also a natural, okay, I'm feeling much more secure and assured, you know, whatever about my work. No one, no one can draw a line like you do with spray paint thin, perfect, straight line. 
Any secrets you want to reveal on how you do that? Uh, the simplest thing I could say is all you have to do is turn the can upside down. Seems pretty simple. Uh, yeah, that it's not that simple. Yeah. But okay. Yeah. <laughs> simple, for, simple for future. That's the starting point. I know it sounds crazy. Like what? But yeah, try turning the can upside down. Alongside your art practice, you've also collaborated with a range of brands. They include Nike, Supreme, Motorola, G-Shock, BMW, the New York Yankees, and the New York Mets. Is there a difference between how you approach your corporate work versus your art practice? Well, fortunately, you know, the corporate collaborations, you know, brand packaging with someone else on a product, you know, we have a whole team there with me that's able to help me realize that. So that makes that task or project quite easy as far as how we're all working together. You know, the painting world, once again, it's a little more isolated. It's just kind of me off on my own little island. And it gives me more freedom, I think. You know, it's not like uh, a dance between yourself and a client or yourself and other partners, if you will. But I enjoy both, you know, a lot. But I compartmentalize a lot, too. You know, I, 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 I don't let things spill off and I try to keep it just for me. It's just easier how to approach stuff when I'm not like all cluttered and I... I just see one thing for what it is, and I try to do the best I can and, and then immediately could switch over and do the other thing. Your most recent shows, which I believe just closed, were a show aptly titled Futura 2020 at the Eric Firestone Gallery in New York City and an installation at the Noguchi Museum in Queens where you created a suite of hand-painted Akari lanterns. I've been trying to get my hands on one of those lanterns. I'm assuming that they're all sold out. Actually, uh, the exhibition at the Noguchi Museum with the Akari lamps, the museum decided they would not be for sale. So, Oh, that's why I can't yes, find them. <laughs> yes. Perhaps that meant, though, that, that, was a, that was a good sign, though, in meaning that they wanted to retain them for their own collection. Yeah. So that's... Well, they're stunning. Yeah, well, thank you. The body of work that you're creating right now, I mean, congratulations on two such epic shows. Your work has just evolved. You are a master, and it's an incredible thing to see the body of a person's work evolve in the way that it has for you over the last 50 years. So I have two last questions for you. Probably more than anyone in the world, you've seen an extraordinary evolution of the art of graffiti over the last five decades. What do you think of the current street art at the moment? Uh, I think it's amazing what's happening in street art globally because there's a whole world of uh, space available. And seemingly there's festivals, you know, on what was used to be almost like a bi-monthly basis in some city around the world where artists are being invited in. And then those kind of group events set off what happened in SE Studios where you're there with other individuals painting and the global vibe is positive. You know, it's, it's like I say, I mean, if I was a young artist right now, I would want to maybe join that place like powwow in hawaii that sponsor large group events from artists around the world to come to various cities and and do large works um you know i mean i think it's it's headed in a wonderful direction as far as giving artists 
a chance to get their work seen. Lenny, my last question for you is this. You mentioned Norman Mailer before. In May of 1974, right at the peak of phase one of your long career, Esquire magazine ran a cover story written by Norman Mailer titled, as you spoke about the subsequent book, The Faith of Graffiti. Yes. The illustration on the cover was a riff on Norman Rockwell's The Old Sign Painter. Yes. Which at one point was a cover of the Saturday Evening Post. It was designed by Jean-Paul Godet. The illustration is of a young, skinny African-American man with a close-cropped haircut and round wire rim glasses. Yep. Painting an easel with a spray can. Yes, I've reposted that image, if you will. It's very famous. But that's you. It's you, isn't it? Well, Wasn't it based on you? Oh, no. It has to be. There's oh, no, no one else at the time that looked like that. Oh, no. I wish I've it, done oh, research God, here. I, I wish I could take credit. No. You know, it's funny. No, because, that has to be you. <laughs> no, you're too kind. The, as you say, the art director, Jean-Paul Good, who I wound up meeting Good. Okay. Uh, later in the 80s, I met him. Wonderful man, super genius. And I referred to him. I was like, oh, my God, Jean-Paul Good, you did the cover of Esquire back in 74. And he's like, you know, ah, we, we, or whatever, right? But wonderful guy. And, yeah, that's an epic photo. No, it's not. I certainly don't think it's intended to be me. Anyway, if, if, if we could do a... We could do a remake of that, Debbie, and, and I, would, yes. I would sit in for that reenactment. Let, let's do that when normal times resume. Absolutely. I am still going to maintain, I need to, for my own sense of reality, maintain that it is you. Okay. I'm going to go ask my, my listeners to, it's very easy to Google Norman Miller, The Faith of Graffiti Esquire, yep. and then Google Futura 2000 and 1974. You tell me, oh boy. listeners. Oh, boy. Whether or not you agree that that is indeed Lenny Hilton McGurr. Lenny. Debbie. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And I, I look forward to... Uh, Doing that reshoot. <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Once the world returns. Yes. All right. Leonard Hilton McGurr, a.k.a. Futura, thank you for making the world a better design place, and thank you for joining me today on Design Matters. You can find out more about Futura and see some of his work at the websites of the Eric Firestone Gallery and the Noguchi Museum. This is the 17th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Melman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. In non-pandemic times, the show is recorded at the School of Visual Arts Masters and Branding Program in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Wyland.